So one of my favorite ministry moments from last week was I got to help four guys uh, install a basketball goal out there on the, the sport court that we had poured uh, on the property over there. And we're so pumped for this. Uh, number one, just because of ministry and the aid to ministry that it is. And, uh, but also just for you, like you can go play on it and bring your families and enjoy and, and just invite the community to come and use that facility that's awesome. It's gonna be a really cool tool. It's not quite done because we still have one more goal to put up and then we're adding lights, which is really exciting. And then there's some little landscaping to go uh, around it. But I want you to know, number one, it's ready to go. Like it's playable if you wanted to go play this afternoon, get a little pickup game going or something. Uh, don't call me though, I'll be probably be taking a nap. It was so heavy. I mean, we thought it will be fine, but it was so heavy. It took all five of us to lift it. And even like you think the backboard is going to be the easy part. And once you get the big main post up, you're, no, no, the backboard was the heaviest. It was this solid piece of glass. It's this incredible system. And it took all five of us to lift it up and get that thing bolted together. Uh, but what is so interesting to me is even more than the heavy lifting, uh, what each of us did throughout the afternoon together. And I'm probably breaking some sort of man code here, Matt. I'm not sure. Um, so maybe wives just plug your ears for a second. But every single one of the five of us at some point had to pick up the instruction manual. And it was funny just kind of like watching this happen because it wasn't just one guy, you know, going, hey, we got to do this, do this. It was all of us were like, well, let's check back and see what it says because we wanted to get it right. Like we want to set it up not only safely, but also so that it could be enjoyed for years and years and years and years to come, right? Well, this is what the Ten Commandments do for us. We've talked about last week how they are God's design for life. It's how life works best because he's the creator. He designed it all. And so if these are his rules, then we know it's his design for our lives. Uh, we talked about how it's a sign pointing us to Jesus. For the Israelites who received the Ten Commandments, it was pointing forward to a Savior because they would not be able to fulfill the commandments. We too cannot fulfill the Ten Commandments. And so they are a sign pointing us back to Jesus, right? And to salvation that's found only in Him. And then for those of us who believe and follow Jesus, it is a way to refine us. So it's God's design. It's a sign pointing us to salvation. And it's a way to refine us, to make us more like Jesus so the commands, when we understand them this way, the Ten Commandments, they're a guide to true human flourishing. I mean, this is what life is meant to be like. This is how life works best. And so, yeah, that's an ancient set of rules, but it is still applicable. We can still find relevance in this. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments given the first time. And look with me as we study today the second commandment in verses 4 through 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. We've got the words on the screen. We just want to make sure that you can pay attention to the Word of God today and that you can be immerse yourself in that. And so I want you to just listen to the Scripture, read the Scripture with me, uh, follow along as I read it out loud. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 says, Do not make an idol for yourself whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them 
and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. The structure is really simple. How I want to break this down is just really in two parts. There's only two points to this sermon. There's what is God's command, and then what is God's character. Let's start by looking at what this command actually is. Uh, The command, verse 4, do not make for yourselves an idol. That sounds very, very simple. Uh, the first command is really that God is the sole object of our worship. Do you remember that? Like, you have no other gods before me or besides me. God is the sole object of our worship, right? If that's the first command, the second command is that no object can be an acceptable substitute or aid for worship of God. So if God is our sole object of worship, then no other object, number two, can be a an acceptable substitute for God. In other words, if the first commandment is about who we worship, the second commandment is about how we worship the who. Okay? Now, the word idol it probably conjures up a lot of images in your mind. And in fact, it did have several ways to be translated, different words used for idol in the Old Testament in the, in the ancient Hebrew. And this particular word is a word that res- refers to like statues or representations, which even in our day could include things like paintings or, uh, or um, uh, little figurines or things like that. So uh, think of it that way. Now, this is so simple. Like most of the Ten Commandments, it's straightforward. Just don't do it, right? Uh, well, I mean, we could say like, don't make a worship, uh, don't make or worship a statue or a painting or anything like that. And then we could like sermon over, just don't do it. Go on your way. We'll all live happily ever after, right? Except that what we're learning in the Ten Commandments is that so far, like the Ten Commandments is is sort of like an iPhone. Like it's so user-friendly and and it's so uh, intuitive on the outside. But for that to work, what happens on the inside has to work. And sometimes there's a lot more happening on the inside. This is how the Ten Commandments sort of function. Like, it's not just about what we do or don't do on the outside. It's about what's being done inside of us through the law, through the commandments. See, God's law is something that works in us as much as it's something that we work out. So let's open the second commandment. Like, if we just sort of got it uh, like a fruit Let's cut it open and see what's in it, okay? The second commandment really breaks down to two ways that we can break this command. Uh, The first is that we make the biggest thing small. That's how we break this command. We make the biggest thing smaller. As J.I. Packer said, the built-in habit of fallen minds is to scale down God, right? The effect of our wanting to be on God's level is that we bring him down to ours. What a great way to picture that, to say that. So before Moses could even descend, or maybe we could say before Moses could even scale down Mount Sinai with the two tablets, the Israelites already created a perfect illustration about how they scaled God down 
to a much more manageable size. So we're in Exodus 20, but if you fast forward about 12 chapters to Exodus 32, you see the Israelites growing impatient, realizing that maybe even Moses is probably up there on this mountain where there's thunder and lightning and sound and, and, and flashes, and it's this awe-inspiring cloud, and God's presence is there, and Moses is up there meeting with God, and he's going to bring these commandments down. Well, day after day, they're going, I don't know if I would leave anybody up on a mountain that long, even without all that, without checking in on them. Maybe Moses is dead. And so probably assuming that Moses was already dead, yet also acknowledging like the great power that God had, they asked Aaron, their kind of number two leader, to make them an idol. A statue. Uh, so Aaron takes their gold, um, presumably the gold that they took from Egypt on their way out. He melted it down and he fashioned a golden calf. A golden calf. Now, reading the story growing up, I always assumed this was a, just a, another god, like a representation of like a, well, the Old Testament calls like Baal or some other false god. And I would have probably put this more in the category of commandment number one, that you should have no other gods beside me. But what's interesting about this story that actually in Exodus 32 makes very clear is as Aaron says this, he says, he makes this calf, presents it to the people and says, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's a clear reference to what God had already done and declared that he had done for them. But then he goes one step further and he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, Yahweh, the, the name for the Lord God, who this is a name that has just been introduced. No other culture, no other religion, no other false God shared this name for God or the Lord. This was a completely unique first time ever heard name that God used when he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, when he established covenant with the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. And so it seems that they're not worshiping some other God, they're just taking the God that's been revealed to them and shrinking him down, scaling him down into something more manageable, something more controllable, maybe something more portable, maybe something they can wrap their minds around. So the calf, why a calf? Why not a lion or a, a snake or something like, you know, really cool and awesome? Why a calf? Well, the calf was like a domesticated and docile version of what was really popular in pagan worship around the time, which was the worship of bulls. You know the difference, right? Uh, the bull, and you, you don't want to meet one in the pasture, right? If you're stuck in one pasture with a bull, you're going like, how can I get on the other side of the fence? But a calf, it's just a calf. You, you know, kids wrestle calves down. And so what they've done is they've created a domesticated and a docile version of what pagan worshipers had popularized in worship of bulls. So you start to see how the sin of breaking the second commandment is deeper than simply the creation of a statue to worship. Here's what they did. Their thoughts about God, their understanding of who God was, were shaped by the culture around them. They were taking the, the jewels 
of secular and pagan ideals and attempting to meld them with their understanding of God, Yahweh. Now, what they should have been doing was keeping their eyes on the mountain where God, the one true God, was revealing himself. But they did not keep a singular focus. They let their eyes wander. They picked up on cues from culture. They introduced ideals from paganism and they brought them into their worship of the one true God. Now, we break this command in the same way. Making the biggest thing God, making God small, we we break this command by letting anything other than God's revelation shape our thoughts about God. Anything else, anything other than what God has revealed himself as, if it shapes our thoughts about him, we have broken the second command. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite theologians, says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So, how does this happen? Let me just present a couple of scenarios. If culture is shaping your understanding of God, for example, you might long for a more tolerant God, a God who doesn't punish people for certain lifestyles that they might choose. Maybe a God who lets sin slide. Maybe you're hoping that God is more progressive than who you thought he was or who your parents told you he was. If that's you, if your thoughts about God are being shaped by the culture around you, then you have made and are worshiping a God that is a false image of God, a scaled down version of the one true God. How about this? If circumstances are shaping your view of God, for example, like maybe things are going really well in your job and in your family and you have plenty of money right now and you feel like you've been coming to church and that makes everything good. You're like, I'm hashtag blessed, right? This is like really good. Uh, Or it could be on the flip side and you're like, things are going really bad for me. I'm hashtag cursed. If that's a thing, I don't think that's a thing on Instagram, hashtag cursed, I'm not sure. But if your thoughts about God are based on how your life is going, then guess what? You have made and are worshiping a false image, a scaled down version of the one true God. He's above all that. He's bigger than all that. And he's revealed himself already. So how do we, why do we need to make him more manageable? Why do we need to make him more palatable? This is how we break this command. So just like the Israelites should have kept their eyes on the mountain of God and heeded the words of God, we can keep this command by exclusively pursuing our thoughts of him to be shaped only by his specific revelation, which he's done in two ways. God has revealed himself specifically to us through the person of Jesus Christ and through the word of God we call the Bible, the scripture. If anything outside of those two things are shaping our thoughts of God, then we are breaking the second command worshiping and making false gods. Now, the other way to look at this is we're just going to flip the coin over. 
The second way this command is broken is by making the small things the biggest. Making the small things the biggest. Uh, My high school art class held a school-wide pumpkin carving contest. I've told this story before, so I apologize if you've heard this before, but I don't have that many stories, and uh, you know, the older I get, the more I just recycle them. So uh, instead of carving a jack-o'-lantern, like pretty much everybody else did, I decided I was going to be funny. Uh, I was sort of a little bit of a class clown, and so I wanted to do something funny, and uh, my brother had, had a goldfish named Kramer uh, that had recently died, and so I thought, I'm going to make a tribute uh, to Kramer on a pumpkin. And so what I did was I carved not all the way through the pumpkin. I did what's called a relief where you just kind of scale, scale out or shave off the orange part, right? So I, I carved a relief carving of a goldfish, like 10 times the size of a goldfish into the side of a pumpkin. And it was a tribute to the, the short life of my brother's goldfish named Kramer. Uh, I just thought I was being funny, right? Uh, it turns out it was actually creative. And, uh, you know, the, the, the pumpkin's like the fishbowl, right? And then there's this stationary image of, a goldfish and go figure actually won the contest. It was really, it's like one of my life, you know, accomplishments. (laughs) But here's the deal. No matter how big I made that goldfish or no matter what I did to that goldfish or said to that pumpkin or whatever, that goldfish on that pumpkin would never swim, right? And that pumpkin would eventually rot. So the truth that I'm trying to illustrate with this is, is that creation cannot contain the glory of the creator. It will always fall short. It will always fail. It will never live up to its promise. Creation cannot contain the glory of the creator. Or as one author says, we can't take a good thing, even a good thing, and make it a God thing. Now, I'm kind of picking on art, but art's not forbidden. I mean, it just says, do not make an idol for yourselves, right? Don't bow down to it. Don't serve them. But art and creativity, these things aren't forbidden. In fact, um, God demands that we worship him artfully and creatively, as we've already experienced this morning. Uh, Let me just give you an example. A, A beautiful painted depiction of Jesus that you might see in a museum or art gallery somewhere, and I recognizing nobody has ever known what Jesus looked like. You might see that painting and it it might inspire you to think of God. It might inspire you to worship. But what this command prevents us from doing is actually worshiping that image or focusing our hearts and minds on the painting or bowing down before the painting or praying to the painting. It sounds pretty simple, right? Anything created... cannot be a substitute for God, right? The the created thing can't contain the glory of the creator. In other words, spiritual symbols even uh, contain no spiritual power. They're just symbols. Church buildings, stained glass, uh, you know, things like the cross hanging around a necklace, like these are all good things, but they don't contain the person or power of God. God himself is the only thing that is to be glorified and contains the fullness of glory. So 
It's not just, though, about things we make up with our hands. In fact, uh, creativity is sort of implied in this command. It says don't make uh, idols for yourselves, but then it goes on to say don't bow down to them, meaning he's kind of assuming that we've already made some things that could become an idol, right? But the reality is it's more than just what we make with our hands. It's also how we make up our minds what worship is or isn't. Think about this. Uh, If I can only worship to certain styles of music, I've made an idol of music, or at least the style I prefer. Uh, If I can only worship uh, in maybe certain clothes, uh, I've made an idol of the clothes. If I can only worship in certain lighting, I've made an idol of the lights. And then where we tend to get it wrong is that these things aren't just our preferences, they're things we want to put on other people as expectations too, right? And that's making an idol of those things. But where it gets really scary is that we're not just making idols for ourselves. What's actually happening when we choose our preferences is that we're making idols of ourselves. We're breaking both the first and the second commandment at the same time. So our hearts are idol factories. Like we're just cranking them out. The the command is to not idolize them and not bow down to them, not to serve them. But we constantly have the tendency to make the biggest thing small, to shrink God down into our size or to make the small things biggest. That's how we break this command. And so we have to ensure that our worship is worship of God alone in the fullness of his glory and in God's way alone. Jesus famously spoke to a woman at a well in John chapter four about worship uh, and about how people would go up a mountain, a particular mountain to worship. And he said, I tell you, worship, true worship is worship in spirit and in truth. But you know what happens when we make an idol of something else or of ourselves? We take the spirit and the truth out of worship. And we get something that is so foreign to what God actually desires from our hearts. It doesn't even make sense. So we have to ensure our worship is of God alone and in God's way alone because nothing created can contain his glory. We also have to pay attention because the second commandment is one of five in the whole scope of 10 commandments that gives us more than just a brief command. It gives us some extra info, uh, some extra content, right? We get that first, don't make an idol for yourselves, but then there's like a lot more happening here in verses five and six in particular. So just look look with me at verses five and six because what's happening is God is using this command as a springboard to further reveal his character, God's character. So look at verse five and six. It says, do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What is this teaching us about God's character? 
when you think about law, think about what comes to mind. Can I just tell you what came to my mind? Uh, when I think about the word law, what came to my mind were two images. One was seeing a patrol car when it's too late. <laughs> Has anybody been in that situation? Uh, the other image that came into my mind uh, was like a judge slamming down a gavel, like delivering a verdict. Uh, maybe you've thought of something else, but when the Bible uses the word law, it's the word Torah. It's what the Jewish people would call the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, right? That word Torah doesn't mean those things. It doesn't mean being caught for speeding or, or you know, having a verdict delivered. It means simply instruction. And the image it gives is like a father who lovingly guides a son, giving words of wisdom along the way of life, right? This is what Torah, this is what law means in the context of the scripture. And so in some ways, as we think about this, the law is a form of what you might call patrimony, like that relationship of a father to a son. But then as we see in God, in his covenant that he's establishing with Israel is that the law is also a form of matrimony. Now you've heard that word at weddings, right? This is holy matrimony, right? This is, this is a relationship like between a, a husband and a wife. And so God is likening himself, not just like a father to a son who's caring and loving and wise. He's also likening himself to a husband to a wife who's loyal and kind and gracious and protective. And so we see these characteristics kind of lined out, three characteristics of God in verses 5 and 6. And the first one is that we see that he's jealous. He says it right out, I'm jealous. But not like a toxic jealousy like you might see in like teenage relationships if you're hanging out in the high school, stuff like that. We're talking about a jealousy that's pure, that emphasizes loyalty to the highest degree. A jealousy that could only come in this way from a perfectly loving spouse. Here's In the same way that pornography and cheating have no place in a marriage, idolatry is spiritual adultery. This is what God is talking about. Of course I don't want you, you know, fashioning anything less than me or, or giving, attributing more power to something created than it can handle. Of course I don't want that because when you do that, it's like you're disrupting the covenant, you're breaking the vows that we've made together in this relationship like a husband and wife. It's like introducing another partner into a marriage. Of course, that's not going to work, right? And so God says, I'm jealous. I'm fiercely loyal. I'm going to be with you no matter what. But can I just tell you that to keep this relationship pure, nothing can come between us. That's what he means. Second thing is that he's just. He's just. In other words, sin will not go unpunished. Sin will not go unpunished. He says punishing the children for their fathers or their parents' iniquity to the third and fourth generation. Now that sounds pretty harsh, but God is not going around uh, inflicting punishment or consequence on innocent children for the sins of their parents. In fact, that idea is never supported in the Bible. But over and over and over again throughout the entire scripture, the idea is supported that the person who sins will be judged and punished for their sin. 
So what is he trying to say? I think it's this, that if we look closely at the verse, the warning is for the generations who continue to hate God. So it's for the child that learned sinful ways from his parents or her parents and did not turn away from them, but lived into them and took them on as their own and continued to hate God. Of course, the parents and the child will be punished. So the third and fourth generation. Now, what does that mean for us? I think when we see a just God, what we have to recognize is this. Parents and grandparents, you better believe that your children and grandchildren are watching your relationship to God and they are mimicking it for good or for bad. But also, children, grandchildren, you don't have to choose the same ways your parents chose. Your parents are breaking God's law. If you've had generations of people who have lived in sin, you can break that cycle because God's grace is available to you. In fact, this is the third thing God reveals. It says that, yeah, the, the punishment will be visited to the third and fourth generation, but God's faithful love will extend to the thousandth generation. Do you love that contrast? I mean, I can count three and four on one hand. A thousand? That's mind-boggling. God is gracious. So faithful love to the thousandth generation, this, this word love, and this idea of faithful love is translated in our version here, it, it comes from the Hebrew word hesed, hesed. And this is this word that's translated faithful love or like covenant love. Uh, Dr. Todd Steele is one of the professors at the seminary I attended, and he said that this is our best Old Testament word uh, for grace. Like we have like a clear New Testament word for grace. This is our best Old Testament word for grace. And so when God says faithful love to the thousandth generation, what he's saying is that you can't out the grace I have available to you. You can't outrun the mercy that I'm willing to extend. If you will just turn to me, if you will love me and pursue my commands, my grace will never end, right? For the things I pass down to my kids, if I pass down wealth, it can be squandered. If I pass down uh, an heirloom, it can be lost or it can be, uh, it can be destroyed, right? But God is saying nothing can stop his grace for those who choose the one true God over everything else. So of course, it's the best way to live, right? Because we can live in God's grace as we choose him over everything else. You know, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments like a, pa a parent chastising a child. Like, you better not or else. But the commands of God, in particular this one, which is then followed by this revelation of his character, it's a clear reminder that nothing else but God will leave us better off. Nothing else but God can do for us what he can do. Nothing else but God will love us in the way God does. And so it's not you better not or else, it's nothing else but him will leave us better off. If I could put this sermon into one phrase, as we're sort of wrapping up today, this is the phrase. Hand the chisel 
back to God. We're talking about sculpting, fashioning, creating little things that might represent him. Like as if we have a tool, like a hammer and chisel in our hand to make something that might represent him as a substitute. But what this law is saying is hand the chisel back to him. Because it's not just about what we do or don't do, right? It's about what God is doing in us. The commandments point us back, as you'll remember, they point us back to God's design. They point us to God's design, remembering that, uh, that God made us in his image. He first crafted us. And he did it in his image, meaning we bear his image, except that our reflection of him is distorted by sin. So we're not giving an accurate image until our sin is dealt with. In fact, this is what happened. Uh, the psalmist records this event at Mount Sinai uh, with the golden calf in Exodus 32. The psalmist in Psalm 106 says this, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God, their Savior. That implies that they had glory because they were made in the image of God. And instead of reflecting God's image, they exchanged it for something that could never contain God's glory and in doing so forgot God their Savior. And it's so interesting because this is not just God's design, but it's also the Ten Commandments are a sign pointing us to salvation, right? It's a sign pointing us to our need for a Savior because we can't fully keep the commandments, neither could they, but they point us to the one who did, Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly fulfilled Life as the image of God on earth. He was the only one to ever do it. That's what made him the acceptable sacrifice for sin. Because he lived and fully fulfilled God's law. The Bible says that Jesus made the invisible God visible to us. In fact, listen to Colossians chapter 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son, in speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of His nature. And so the Ten Commandments point us not only back to God's design that we were created in His image, but then distorted it by sin, but that it also points us to the Savior who did fulfill this, who did live as God's perfect image, reflecting Him purely and then once we come to trust jesus by faith for the forgiveness of our sin then god indwells our lives in the form of his holy spirit and begins his work in us and the ten commandments then serve to refine us discipleship to jesus is how we reclaim the image of god in our lives, and in the world. This is how we obey the second commandment. I love how Jen Wilkin points this, uh, puts this in, in her book, uh, 10 Words to Live By. She says, we strive to look like Christ. If there is to be whittling, let it be whittling away of our sins of commission. 
If there is to be carving, let it be carving out of our sins of omission. The Ten Commandments show us how to live on earth as in heaven, conforming to the image of Christ as representatives of Yahweh. They are engraving tools. The more we obey them, the more we reflect his character, visibly reflect his character to a world that very much needs us to. The second command compels us both to stop worshiping the image of God diminished and to start becoming the image of God restored. This is how we live this out. So let the chiseling begin. We may never seek to fashion an image to be worshiped as a God substitute. You probably won't. You probably haven't. But it's equally a second commandment sin when we don't seek, when we do not seek in partnership with the Holy Spirit to be refashioned into the image of God to reveal his faithful love to the world. The commands are a gift to us. This is the direction that we have to go if we want to truly flourish as humanity on this side of heaven. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. It speaks truth into our lives that points us in a direction sometimes even we don't want to go, but is best. As we respond to your word, I do pray, God, that you would chisel us into your image again, that we could rightly reflect you to the world around us, to enjoy life the way you designed it to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.